The Craft Food Classroom is a comprehensive and in-depth five-part online, go-at-your-own-pace course that will provide everything needed to build a thriving food business. Each module includes a video, presentation, workbook, and quiz. This course teaches students exactly what they need to know to succeed in the craft food industry and avoid pitfalls and costly mistakes. Learn more at thecentral.kitchen/classroom and you can use podcast21 at checkout for 10% off anytime. Again, that code is podcast21 for 10% off. Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. Today's interview is all about getting your food or beverage brand into retail stores. In this interview, I speak with Ali Ball, founder and CEO of Food Biz Wiz, a company that helps package food, beverage, and grocery brands with their wholesale strategy. They help brands get onto shelves and have high sales once they do. Ali passionately talks about her experience as a buyer for a fast-growing grocery chain and how that taught her many valuable lessons about the brands that succeed in retail and those that don't. We also talk about commonly held limiting beliefs she sees in brands she works with and how to overcome them. Allie shares some awesome tips on how to best get in front of buyers and the typical mistakes brands make when they try to engage with the buyer. Allie is engaging and passionate and definitely knows her stuff. This interview is packed with actionable tips for CPG brands. Enjoy. All right, Allie, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for jumping on. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Ken. I'm, I'm doing well. Excited to be here. Yeah, um, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. I think that this will be, um, you know, content rich and, you know, with a lot of really good stuff uh, to share with the audience. Um, where, where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from San Francisco, from my my living room in San Francisco right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody calls in from their living room or, you know, I or, know, I know. Or closet well, sometimes. Is what exactly. Oh, the closet is great for podcasting. <laughs> um, and so are you from the San Francisco area? Or, or You know, or? I moved here in 2007. So it feels like home now, you know, 15 years, 15 years later. Uh-huh. Where, where's home? Where's like, I grew up in Connecticut. Oh, cool. I love yeah. Connecticut. We used to oh. have family that lived out there. So we'd go out there about once every two years or so. 
Oh, it's lovely. And I just had my first, I took my first uh, flight in 18 months and I flew back to Connecticut and I went to my younger brother's wedding. So I I just got a little, a little taste of Connecticut in the fall and it was, it was just lovely. Yeah. That's the best time of year, I think Mm -hmm. for for the Northeast. So, Um, so why don't we uh, kick this off with a quote? Um, Do you have anything that comes to mind that that's impactful to you or motivational in some way? Yes, I actually have a quote that so you asked me this question in advance of the podcast. And I just (laughs) I knew immediately which it was going to be because I have a quote that is uh, behind my desk. So I look at this quote every morning. And it is tomorrow is often the busiest day of the week. Have you heard that quote before, Ken? No, I haven't. I yeah. haven't. I'm, yeah, what, what, what exactly do you mean by it? So tomorrow is often the busiest day of the week. And I turn to this in the morning because it helps me prioritize what's important. And it really reminds me that there is, <laughs> there's never going to be a perfect time to do something. And it's really easy to push things off and push things off and push things off. And when we say you know, I'll do it tomorrow or I'll do it next week, or maybe next year I'll start that thing. Mm -hmm. We don't prioritize our goals or prioritize what we really want to be doing. So it's a great reminder for me to be present and to prioritize what's important. Yeah. Yeah. And especially the, the people, the, you know, Mm -hmm. closest people in in your lives. Oh gosh. It's really easy to do. Especially when you're an entrepreneur or a, you know, a CPG founder, it is a busy, busy industry and easy to get overwhelmed in the day to day. Yeah. Well, Allie, um, I guess, why don't you tell us just a little bit about your background? I'm, I'm curious, you know, what took you to San Francisco? Yeah, sure. So I actually moved to San Francisco from Copenhagen. And I had been living in Copenhagen for a few years working for the University of Copenhagen. And my visa was expiring. And I had to figure out where to go next. And this is when I was Gosh, I was in my early 20s and my then boyfriend at the time, now husband, and I looked at each other and we said, where do we want to go? (laughs) What would be fun? And sure enough, we decided San Francisco and, and we really landed on it because we knew we wanted to be in a city, but we wanted close proximity to the outdoors and to nature and that idea that we could drive 20 minutes and be you know, hiking or mountain biking or on a beach or, you know, just in the middle of nowhere. So it it really ended up being a great place for us. And I didn't, you know, when I was 22, 23, I did not think that I would be in San Francisco for the rest of my life. But um, here we are now. There's there's no looking back. <laughs> well, nice. Well, I, I love San Francisco and you're right. There's mm-hmm. lots of outdoorsy things to do. Yeah. And it's, you know, the food scene out there is awesome oh. too. It's just incredible. So I got involved in the food scene in San Francisco in about 2008, you know, right, right when we were hitting a, a recession and I started working in grocery. And, you know, in, in some ways I call it the glory days of grocery because specialty <laughs> food was just, you know, it was so, it, it was trending, it was booming and and people were cooking at home. You know, we mm. were, it's, it actually is not unlike what happened in <laughs> over the past 18 months where people weren't going out to restaurants as much. They weren't indulging in experiences out and about and people were looking to recreate those special moments in their home kitchens. And so specialty food was just skyrocketing and it was a really fun time to start 
you know, getting involved with grocery. And so was that with Buy Right Market? Is mm-hmm. that, yeah, is that-, that was with Buy Right. And when I was hired, gosh, I was employee number 68 when I was hired. And by the time I left, we had over 350 employees. Wow. So I just saw this you know, massive growth at Byright when I was there. And I, I feel so grateful that I, you know, that I joined that team when it really was tiny, but mighty. And that, that idea that, you know, it was all hands on deck and we were all working the sales floor. We were all like working the cash registers. We were all like getting behind the butcher counter. Um, it was really special time at Byright. Cool, cool. So what did you do at BuyRight? What was your job? Yeah, yeah. so I was a grocery buyer. So my job was to find products for our shelves and make sure that we had high sales once I put them on our shelves. And so I worked with a team. Uh, We had a team of grocery buyers. They still have a team of grocery buyers. And this was back, you know, before Instagram, before lots of food blogs, before, you know, all of these um, wonderful ways that we can do product discovery now. And so I would go to farmers markets and I would read trade publications and I would, you know, go to underground like pop-up events and things like that to find the best of the best that wasn't represented on our shelves yet. And Mm. Ken, I just, I loved that role. It was so... I don't know. It, it was so it was so special to work with these early stage food entrepreneurs and help them understand how to succeed on the shelf because it's way more than having <laughs> a delicious product or having unique flavors. There are so many things that go into succeeding on the shelf, and it was such a such a privilege to be able to have that impact on small business owners and know that I was able to you know, in a small way, play a role in their business success. So I did that for many years. And then we decided to open a second location by right to visit arrow, which was about three miles across town, still in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And my role shifted. And I became head of grocery and retail store manager of that second location. Hmm. And in that my responsibilities obviously shifted as well. And I became I was gonna say solely focused, but that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but very focused on the PL. So looking at profit and loss of our grocery department week in and week out and figuring out how I could, you know, change up our operations or change up our staffing or, you know, change up something to become a more sustainable and profitable grocery department. And this was big. We were doing about $7 million of of sales in year one, you know, just in the grocery department alone. And so like really high volume in a 3000 square foot store. And while it was very educational, while it was, you know, I, I, again, very grateful that I learned how to read, you know, financial statements. I really missed working with producers. I really missed having that impact on a small business owner. And so I realized, you know, after time that it was time for me to leave Byright. It was time for me to start my own thing. And I left Byright in 2014, so about seven and a half years ago, and started my consulting business to help food, beverage, and taxable grocery brands understand the behind the scenes of wholesale. Okay, understood. Yep. And so, yeah, that leads directly into uh, Food Biz Whiz, right? yes. which, is, which is your current business. Can you just tell exactly. us a little bit about it and, and what type of yeah. food brands do you focus on? 
Yeah. Oh, that's a great question because there are so many. <laughs> um, and I, I work with brands across all different categories, across all different supply chain. If you put it on a pack in a package and you want to sell it on retail shelves, whether those are physical shelves, brick and mortar shelves, or e-commerce shelves, we work with you. So we work with brands inside of Retail Ready. It's an online course that I've been teaching for about five years. We've had over a thousand brands go through our program and it helps brands who are already established. So you already have to be in production and it helps you understand how to speak the language of wholesale buyers, how to craft pitches that get buyers to say yes, and then how to actually sell through, sell off the shelf once you get those retail accounts. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Let's double click on that just for a little bit. Like, could you give us something specific that you teach on um, in that course, you know, that, you know, the listener could, could take home and maybe apply right away? Yes. Absolutely. I've got, I've got a couple golden rules that we teach inside of Retail Ready that I'm happy to share here. Mm-hmm. So I think the one of the biggest light bulb moments that our, our Retail Ready students have is that they think that wholesale buyers are going to say yes to carrying your product line because it's delicious or it's sustainably made or it's local or female founded or whatever it is. But none of this is true. Right. And until you realize the real reason why buyers say yes to product lines, you'll be wasting your time and frankly, wasting the buyer's time as well. Hmm. You know, because can I see, I used to see all the time pitches that would start with the sentence like, Hi, Allie, like my name's, my name's Ken, and I make the most delicious, ready to drink cold brew that you've ever had. And Ken, if you started your pitch like that, I, I gotta say, I would roll my eyes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on the phone, I'd be rolling my eyes in the background. And I would be like, okay, yeah, Ken, you and everybody else who pitched to me this week. Right. And so we need to shift our thinking away from my product is delicious. I'm more sustainable. I'm more, you know, values oriented, whatever it is, all those product attributes, those brand attributes, we need to shift away from that. And we need to recognize that buyers bring in new products in order to hit their category goals. So category goals can be anything from increasing margin, increasing revenue in decreasing spoilage or shrinkage or something like that. Pretty much they're always tied to financial goals, right? Right. Um, So your product has to help that buyer hit their category goals. And so if you craft a pitch that articulates how your product line is going to align with that buyer and help them hit their goals, that buyer is much more likely to say yes to carrying your product. That's interesting, you know, and it's, it's sort of like, um, it should be intuitive, but I can see how, you know, as as product people, we get obsessed with our product Mm, and and our, you know, our (laughs) position and all of that. Um, So quick question, how do you know what the buyer's goals are? Is Mm. there a way to, to find that out in advance of the pitch? Oh, that's such a great question. And I would say yes and no. You know, I think if we recognize that buyer's goals are always based on financial performance, 
you know, 99% of the time. Yes, of course, there are initiatives of, um, you know, different initiatives that a buyer might be focused on. But at the end of the day, the buyer's performance is based off financials. We can craft a pitch that is financially focused, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't have to know exactly what that buyer goal is as long as we understand that it's under the umbrella of financials. And so I think about this a lot, Ken. I'll give an example here. So if I, you know, when I was a buyer, if I sat down to my annual review and my boss said to me like, Allie, frozen sales are flat this quarter. Like you, you didn't hit your goals there. Frozen sales are just flat. And I said to my boss, like, I know they're flat, but you know, that frozen pierogi brand that I brought in just has the best, you know, best recipe. It's sourced from the founder's great grandma. And, you know, they really like, they have this wonderful story behind their brand. Mm -hmm. My boss would think that I was, you know, delusional. <laughs> it's not my job to bring in that wonderful brand that, that has that fantastic story unless it increases sales on our shelf. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good example. And um, uh, I'm curious if that actually happened. Did you actually have this mm. conversation with your boss about pierogies? <laughs> no, I didn't. That was a made up example on the fly. But, um, <laughs> you know, it is, I've had many tough conversations with bosses and supervisors and different people in, in grocery departments. And it is just so eye-opening to, to think about or to recognize what the buyer thinks about day in and day out in their job and realize that buyers are real people who have busy jobs. And the more we can, I don't know, can, it's almost like having empathy for the buyer. The more we can have empathy for the buyer and recognize that they aren't just the gatekeepers to our success, the more we can develop a personalized relationship with them and have faster, you know, faster success on the shelf. Hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned, um, so I think this was a really good tip and um, really actionable. Um, you, you mentioned that you had a couple others, you know, of, of these mm -hmm. commonly held yeah. beliefs. Is there yeah. another one that you could share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So another thing that that people do, and it's shifted a little bit, obviously with COVID, but one of my other golden rules is don't drop by. And this is, you know, I've been saying this for years. This is not a COVID thing. This is a respect for the buyer and the buyer's time. Hmm. And so typically what happens, especially as brands are small and maybe they're starting regionally, you know, they're not trying to get into corporate accounts yet. They're really trying to like hit their independence and in local stores. What they'll do is put all their products in like a cute little bag, you know, with some tissue paper and a business card stapled to it. And they'll swing by those stores and attempt to meet with the buyer and hand off samples. And this doesn't work for a couple of reasons, Ken. First off, you know, gosh, I always say this. Imagine if you were in the middle of your workday and someone knocked on your door and asked if they could have 10 minutes of your time. I mean, imagine if we were, re you know, we're here recording this podcast and somebody knocks on the door and is like, hey, Ken, can I have a quick meeting with you? You know, you wouldn't like that either. Right. And so swinging by unannounced is a great way to, to drive a teeny tiny wedge in between you and the buyer, right? That buyer remembers the people who just swing by unannounced. Furthermore, what typically happens here is that 
the buyer says no, right? Like the, the cashiers or the grocery stockers or whoever it is, know that the buyers don't want to be interrupted <laughs> during the workday. And they act as little like, you know, little bouncers and they say, no, sorry, buyers not here. You can't meet with them. And they take your samples, right? Naturally, because sure. you've got your samples prepped. And I think there's this secret that happens in you know every retail store that I have worked in, every retail store that I've consulted with. We all have something called the sample box, but nobody talks about it, Ken. So the sample box is this box that typically, I mean, it's like literally like a cardboard box here that typically sits you know, above the grocery, grocery buyer's desk, you know, underneath the grocery buyer's desk in some like dusty corner of backstock. And it's literally where the, the team cashiers or grocery stockers, whatever can toss samples in for the buyer to taste at a later date. And this is really important to know because when you drop off your samples with that eager cashier, one of two things is going to happen. Either you know, and this is kind of like best and worst case scenario here again, but either that cashier looks at your product line, they're like, oh, this looks delicious, right? Like you want, <laughs> you want them to have that reaction. And they're like, this looks delicious. You know, it's going to come home with me instead of ending right. up in that sample box. Or they're like, oh, mm, this is, I don't know. It's a CBD tincture. Like we don't sell CBD in our store, I guess. I'm going to put it in the staff break, break room, or I'm going to take it home and give it to my roommate or whatever it is, you know, making that decision for the buyer that we don't need CBD products, not knowing that buyer might have intentions to expand that category six weeks from now, right? So they're making a decision on your behalf. And then in the, you know, again, that best case scenario, they're tossing your product in the sample box, which gets reviewed once every few months. So Ken, you can kind of, I imagine you can see where I'm going with this, that by the time that buyer sits down and goes through the sample box, the products are, you know, expired, crumbled, separated from their sell sheets and their price list. You know, whatever it is, there's certainly not the, the best way that you want to present your product line. And again, it gives that less than stellar first impression on the buyer. Right. So all of that, I think, is understandable. So mm. what is what's a good what's a better path? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm what do you do instead? Brand right? and, you know, I want to get in front of you. You know, what's yeah. the best way to do that? It's really simple. You pick up the phone and call. That's it. I know that sounds crazy. <laughs> You're like, really, Allie? That's that's what I do. And I'll tell you. Um, we, I'm like laughing here because it's so simple. You pick up the phone, you call the store and you ask to speak to the buyer. And that's it. You know, we have brands who come into retail ready and they're like, Allie, I've been pitching for, for months I, to no avail. Like I can't get a buyer to, to respond. And my first question is always, have you picked up the phone and called? Because typically what we see is people are hesitant to pick up the phone and they email instead. And can you know, it's so easy to ignore an email. You know, especially if you're busy, I just, you know, delete archive. I just don't open it. You know, when I was a buyer, I, I would get you know, hundreds of emails every week and I just didn't have time to, to process or like go through all those emails. And it's so much harder to ignore a phone call. So pick up the phone and call, and then you've got to have a perfectly crafted pitch that is, you know, it's typically like 
under a minute long and it articulates what your product is going to do for that buyer. So again, how your product line is going to help that buyer hit their category goals. And then you simply ask, like, you know, you simply state what you want to happen next. So that could be, you know, Ken, I'd love to swing by next Wednesday at 10 a.m. and put samples in your hands. Are you available? Or Ken, I'd love to ship you samples. What's your shipping address? Or Ken, I'd like to ship you a first order. <laughs> Can I send you onboarding paperwork? You know, whatever, whatever feels appropriate at that step. But um, typically it is getting confirmation that you can swing by or ship um, and get samples directly in the hands of the buyer. Okay, awesome. Awesome, that's great. Um, so on your website, you say that product lines don't sell, but brands mm. do. Yeah. You know, what, what do you mean by that? And you know, what can uh, brands take from that? What, you know, what, what's the lesson there? Mm, that's a great question. So when I say that, what I really think about is the bigger why of why consumers purchase products. And consumers, and again, so we're going to shift here from the wholesale buyer's perspective to the consumer's perspective, okay. that end user. And I, I really think about how, how products need to create an emotional response from that end consumer. There has to be a reason why the consumer will choose your brand over the dozens of other copycat products out there. And, and typically it's because your brand evokes some sort of emotional response from them. And the ones that do, the ones that, that um, succeed in evoking that emotional connection are the ones that have loyal fans who have people who talk about their products, who shout, you know, about your products around social media or, you know, with their friends and family who, who really become mini brand ambassadors. And they're, those are the products that increase velocity and, and sell faster off the shelf because there is a, a strong consumer base who chooses your brand over and over again. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Do you have an example of a brand that you think that did this really well mm. or, or somebody that you've worked with? Yeah, sure. So let me give this example of Bread Seriously. So Bread Seriously was founded by a woman named Sadie Sheffer. And she started, gosh, she started, I think, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and she's here in the Bay Area and she makes gluten-free sourdough. And I will tell you, I am, I'm not gluten-free. I'm not celiac, but this is the best gluten-free bread that I have ever had. And here's, you know, beyond taste, beyond, you know, all like the cute packaging, beyond the perfect loaf shape, all of those things. Wonderful. She creates the emotional connection of giving sourdough, that sourdough experience, that sourdough taste back to people who haven't been able to experience that because of, you know, being celiac or gluten-free. And that, that emotional response that like, you know, I'm, I, I'm, Ken, if you could see me now, I'm like closing my eyes, like thinking <laughs> about, I'm thinking about like warm sourdough, particularly San Francisco sourdough, you know, we're, yep. we're known for our sourdough. Um, giving that experience back to someone who thinks that they, you know, will never be able to enjoy sourdough again because of their diagnosis is just 
gosh, that experience is so real. It's so big for them. Um, and I think Sadie just did such a great job of tapping into that experience and that that emotion, that the memory that comes with classic sourdough for her consumers. Yeah, yeah. And that's actually an interesting framing, you know, for that product, right? And yeah. just talking and, and focusing in on the emotion behind it instead of just saying it's gluten-free bread. It's safe. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's safe for you to eat. Like it's tasty, like whatever it is. It's really yeah. like, hey, your celiac now, like what's missing in your life? Like, what do you feel like you you can't have or that you're limited by or like, you know, what, where is that emotional void in your life? It sounds so dramatic when I say it, Ken, but you know, um, it, it is, you know, when people receive diagnosis like that, it, it can be hard. It can feel yeah, like you're really yeah. like missing out and that your lifestyle is changing and that uh, you really have to make some drastic shifts in your day to day. And so to have a trusted brand to have a brand say to you, like, actually, no, like I'm going to give you that, that gift back uh, is really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And even just that framing, you know, taps into sort of the human, you know, Mm -hmm. tendency to, you want what you, what you can't have. And so the minute you can't have bread, it's like, right. The cravings come in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the, there are plenty of wonderful gluten-free bread brands out there, right? And mm-hmm. and I think what's really important here is that some people choose bread seriously for that specific reason, for the like nostalgia, for the sourdough, um, you know, aspect in particular. And some people don't care about that, right? Some people are like, I don't care. I don't like sourdough. I don't care about sourdough. Like I never grew up um, eating sourdough. Like that's not the bread brand for me. I don't want that. And that's totally fine here. I think it's, it's really important to realize that you will never be the perfect solution for everyone, right? Everyone is not your target consumer here. What we want to do is really drill into who is your target consumer? Who is the, like the, who is the, like, um, super fan and we market and speak to them knowing that we've, we will attract a larger following outside of that, that super fan base. So this, you know, being able to communicate this passion and, Mm. you know, kind of baking it into her brand, you know, no pun intended, Yeah, (laughs) Um, but you know, so what did this do for her business? You know, like, and is this something that you worked worked with her on, yeah. or is it, you know, yeah. like, so, like how does that translate into business? Yeah, how does it translate into business? Yeah, well, there's a, a few things. One, I think the the important thing is realizing that once she creates that connection with her audience, they become loyalists. They are not going to another brand, right? Like once you can so clearly articulate what you do for your consumer. And once they realize it, right, once they buy in, they're, they're going to buy your brand forever and ever. It's really hard to change consumer behavior. And, and so once you, once you hook them, this sounds so Mm -hmm. business oriented, but like once you get them, once they become that, that loyalist, it's really hard to lose them unless you do something out of integrity. So I think at, in the early days, one of the best things that it did for her was create a really loyal following. And once she had that, she was able to use that traction um, to land on wholesale shelves to understand exactly what her consumers want and then develop products that 
respond to the needs of the consumer that are dictated by the the consumers themselves. You know, she's got that, um, you know, really easy consumer insight you know, that consumer like data right there because she's got those loyal following followers. And then as she expands, you know, and as she expands in wholesale, she can use that data to make sure that she's going into the right accounts, you know, where her target audience is already shopping. And not that it's a guarantee, but she's much more likely to sell through once she, when she it gets in the right channels the first time around. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And I think that's an excellent example. Um, you know, Ali, I'm looking at the time, you know, I worried about this when we started talking, that, <laughs> that me and you could talk forever. We could. Um, and, and, you know, particularly about this subject, I think we're both really passionate about, you know, these brands succeeding yeah. and, you know, getting getting off the ground and really finding their customers and, and all of that. Um well, let's, you know, start to, to wrap a little bit, um, but I, I wanted you to just get, get an opportunity to tell us just a little bit about Retail Ready, who it's yeah. for, um, yes. and kind of how do you know that, you know, that uh, they should reach out to you? Like, mm. at, you know, at what point is, that, is it a good idea for them to reach out to you and, and start a conversation? Yeah, thank you for asking. So I'm... I'm just so proud of Retail Ready and really excited by it. You know, like I said, we've been teaching it over five years and and the community and content we have in there is just so strong. So the way Retail Ready is structured is we've got our curriculum, we've got our coaching and our community. So the curriculum is all about getting on those wholesale shelves and having high sales once you're there. So Ken, you know, that's your typical online course where we've got our private student platform and videos and workbooks and checklists and templates and basically all of the resources that you could ever need on expanding your wholesale accounts live in that course platform. We then have coaching, which is twice a month live group coaching calls. Once you enroll in Retail Ready, you have lifetime access to everything. And so these, it's so fun to see people who have taken Retail Ready, you know, four years ago, five years ago, continue to show up on our coaching calls. Mm -hmm. So once a month, it's with me and my colleague, our, our VP of Student Success, his name's Charlie Birkinshaw, and he is actually a founder himself. He runs Element Shrub, which is a ready-to-drink and concentrated beverage line. So he comes in and he provides that founder perspective in addition to my buyer perspective. So once a month, we've got calls with Charlie and me. And then once a month, we bring in an industry expert to supplement our knowledge. So for example, this month, we have a food scientist coming in to talk about product development. We've got, you know, a PR person, food financials all around the supply chain and like everything that we need to craft successful food businesses. And then we've got our community. And that is, you know, an online community with our all of our students who have taken Retail Ready and that, gosh, when I was thinking about what I'm proud about in, in Retail Ready, the community is one of the aspects that I'm just so flabbergasted by. It's amazing to see these founders come in at all different stages of their business and collaborate and empathize and support each other in just a, a really magical way, Ken. And awesome. so- you know, those are the three main components of it. If you could see my me on video right now, I'm making a little triangle with my hands, our, our curriculum, our coaching and our community all come together to form Retail Ready. And then the biggest thing, the biggest thing that, that we want our potential students to know is that you have to be in production already in order to really take advantage of Retail Ready. You know, I'm 
not a product developer. I'm not a food scientist. <laughs> I don't want to be a food scientist. And, and frankly, I'm not qualified to answer questions around product development. Um, so once you figure out what you are making and how you're going to produce it, Retail Ready is the next step. Okay, awesome. And um, if you want to find out more information about Retail Ready, wh where, yeah. where should you go? Yeah, great question. So we've got a wait list for Retail Ready. We open enrollment throughout the year when my team and I have capacity to take on new brands. So on my website, Ken, at alleyball.com, you will see a tab for Retail Ready. It'll take you to the wait list. And if you drop your name in there, you'll be the first to know when we open enrollment again. Cool. And you also have a, a cheat sheet that people can download. Oh, yes. Thank you for mentioning that. So I love this cheat sheet. It is called 100 Buyer Knows. And so, you know, as we were talking today, Ken, I'm sure some of your listeners were like, well, the buyer's still going to say no to my product line. Like you, you gave all these tips on crafting my pitch, but like at the end of the day, I still get a lot of no's. And this is a cheat sheet of literally 100 reasons why a buyer might say no to your product line and all of the rebuttals that you can possibly have to start shifting those no's into yeses. So that's right on my website as well, Ken. It's called the 100 Buyer No Cheat Sheet. And again, just a, a free download on there. Okay. Awesome. Well, let's, let's just shift over to the quick fire round. I've just got four quick questions for you and then we'll wrap this up. Great. You ready? Yeah. All right. What's one tool or resource that you feel has been really helpful for you uh, in your career? Oh, gosh. Um, video. It is. I mean, I know it's a generic one, but going live and showing up, showing my face on social media has been a game changer for my business. Did you have any apprehensions about that before? Oh, you know, or, or yeah. you, I'm like, you know, how? naturally a video person? No, no. Um, I go back and I look at the videos from seven years ago and I'm like, oh gosh, those were bad. Um, and you know, I just kept showing up. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know how I had the confidence to do it, but I just kept showing up. And um, I'm so grateful that I did because the, those powerful connections that I was able to make by showing up as a real person behind Food Biz Wiz has been so valuable. Awesome. Uh, what is one book uh, that you can recommend to the audience? Oh, gosh. <laughs> one book. I would say mm, anything by Brene Brown. I bet you get this a lot. Like Dare to Lead is a great, great book. Um, yeah, Brene gets my vote every time. <laughs> awesome. Um, and what is one piece of advice that you'd give to your 21-year-old self? Mm, I would say move to San Francisco. That I, <laughs> gosh, I did it. I did it right. That was such a key move for me. But if I had to, if I had to give myself advice that I didn't take, that I needed to hear back then, it would probably be eat more vegetables. That's a good one. And your mom would be proud. Exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, who is one person in your field of work that you would love to sit down and take to lunch? Mm. Oh, gosh. These are good questions, Ken. I wasn't prepared for these. <laughs> you know, I will have lunch with Elliot Began any day of the week. Um, has he been on your podcast yet? Uh, no, I, I don't know, Elliot. Oh, uh, my gosh. What, what Elliot, is Elliot is just so smart. He is he's another consultant uh, who works with brands more on the um, financial side of things. And he helps brands 
create a, a growth plan and, and has this just like a, such a realistic philosophy about growing food businesses and has this wonderful way of presenting tough love and real talk, um, all while making people feel empowered at the same time. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely. You should. Um, you know, it's it's so funny. I feel like here we are at the end of my work week, and I, I have to admit that I'm 100% blanking on the the actual name of his business um, because I just know him by Elliot. But I'll pull that up for you. Yeah, and um, and we can include it in the show notes, and, Great. and I'm sure we'll be able to get him as a guest. And so, yeah. Sounds, oh, sounds good. Oh, I know what it is. It's Tig T I G. Um, yeah, his consultancy is goes by the name of Tig, Tig Naturals or something like that. Okay, awesome. Well, you have been a, a great guest for us. Any parting words for uh, CPG mm. brands that are you know up and coming, trying to get into retail? You know, any parting words for them? I'm going to go back to my my quote from the beginning. You know, tomorrow is often the busiest day of the week. So my advice to you would be, if you are listening to this and you're, you're thinking about the next steps, and you just keep pushing it off and pushing it off, you know, I'd really ask you, like, if not now, when are you going to do it? If not now? So go out there and do it. Okay. Well, and you've already told us how to get in touch with you. Ali Ball, is that right? Aliball.com? Yep. Yep. Aliball.com. Find me on Instagram. I'm at it's Aliball and my DMs are always open and I love following new CPG brands. So um, hit me up on, on Instagram or on my website. Okay. Well, Allie, we appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time today. And this has been incredibly valuable. So you didn't disappoint. Thanks so much, Ken. Appreciate it. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for physical product movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. My name is Taylor Howe, and I'm the marketing manager here at Fiddle. I want to jump on real quick to tell you about an incredible free resource that we put together for CPG brands. It's called Fiddle Connect. It's a curated database of over 3,000 co-packers and suppliers. You'll get websites, phone numbers, locations, categories, and more, all in one place. It's a must-have for any CPG brand, especially in the food, beverage, or nutraceutical space. And again, it's 100% free. To get immediate access, just go to fiddle.io forward slash connect. We are constantly updating the database and we promise you're going to love it. It'll save you time and headaches by helping you get to suppliers and co-packers faster than ever. So again, just go to fiddle.io forward slash connect to get free access today.